The Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you this week by you, the hundreds of people who listen to the Door County Pulse podcast and the weekend primer twice a week, every week. If you're an individual or small business who would like to reach out to those hundreds of listeners each week, then why not think about sponsoring an episode of the Door County Pulse podcast or weekend primer? You can do so by emailing us at info at doorcountymarketing.com. From all of us in Door County and across the United States who check in every week to the Door County Pulse podcast, we look forward to hearing from you very soon. And welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor of the Peninsula Pulse. How are you doing, Miles? I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really great. Uh, I think that we can just jump right into it. We have a lot of uh, little updates and wrap-ups to get through, uh, a little bit of new news of what's coming on and what has just happened recently. Yeah, busy uh, week in Door County. Right, and then we're going to jump into our feature about the Fall 50 a little bit later. Uh, first thing I wanted to talk about, let's just get through the updates. Uh, Fish Creek's Beach House bathrooms were voted on yesterday. And they finally made a decision that's going to move them forward. Okay. Uh, I was reading it looked like they they decided to spend no more than 300000 right? Yeah. So they voted on uh, Wednesday night uh, at a town hall meeting at the Gibraltar High School. And this one, not nearly as contentious as previous meetings and discussions about this issue. We've covered a lot on the podcast and in the Pulse, so we don't need to bore everyone with uh, rehashing everything. But essentially, they have struggled to come up with a design for bathrooms at the Fish Creek Beach, which is being expanded thanks to a property purchase a couple of years ago. And they've scaled down the plan for that bathhouse. Um, and they call it bathhouse. I like to call it bathrooms. Bathhouse, I don't even know exactly the what that means. bathhouse sounds more like bathing area. Yes, and that's not what it is. Right. Um, so they've come up with a plan for a four-stall family bathroom facility with a couple of changing rooms that's gone from a $850,000 project. They've pared it down to a budget of no more than 300000 They'll refine some of the architectural work, but Rick Toyne came up with what I think is a, a really nice-looking, rustic-flavored bathroom down there. So they finally have a next step. So hopefully Gibraltar's communication efforts between the town and citizens and citizens in town start moving forward, and they can start moving this quicker. And the plan is now to have it open by July 4th of 2019. Right. Were they voting yes or no on something, or were they picking between a couple They options? were just voting yes or no. They originally talked about bringing three different options to the voters, which would have devolved into like a five-hour discussion and nitpicking of every architectural detail. Right. And I think Rick Toyne advised them to just come with one. And I think that was definitely the right way to, right way to go. Now, uh, I also read in the article that there was some discussion about adding a green roof similar to the, the roof on Al Johnson's. But that would have pushed them over the $300,000 limit, right? So they're, they're deciding against that? Well, yes, I, I believe they, they might go back and and see if they can do something with that for under that 300, but it sounds like that would be too much. And again, they don't need to complicate this, right? in my opinion. No, I would agree. We talked a little bit about the Gibraltar referendum that's coming up on the podcast last week. The Gibraltar school referendum. Yes. There's two other schools that are having their referendums coming up as well, correct? Yes. Uh, both Sebastopol and Southern Door will also have school referendums on the November 6th ballot. And what are the what are the details with? I know that uh, Sevastopol is asking for quite a bit of money this time around, right? Yeah, Sevastopol is asking voters for twenty five point one million dollars to demolish a, a portion, like the nineteen twenty four and nineteen forty six constructed portions of the school, 
that are very outdated. Uh, they have some infrastructure problems, just some HVAC problems. They have some roof problems. And then they also have the fact that they're not conducive really to the way education is done today. They originally came back, came to voters with an idea for like a $57 million new school just to construct an entirely new school. They sent a survey to voters. Voters said no. And <laughs> it just came back like 60 to 65% of voters said like, yeah, we wouldn't be down for that. So they scaled it back to a $25 million plan. And now they've just last week, they actually, Thermotron X, a, a manufacturing company out of Sturgeon Bay, put up $2 million as a pledge, a donation that if both referendums pass, both $25 million facilities referendum and a $2 million operating referendum, they will actually have two different questions on the ballot. If they both pass, Thermotron X will donate $2 million to outfit the sciences and tech and fab lab areas with just top of the line, great new equipment. It's a really generous donation. Thermotronics, it makes sense on a couple levels for them. One, obviously there's a community relations aspect, there's a philanthropic aspect to that. But in an article I did about Thermotronics a couple of years ago, they actually said that they have realized that getting the engineers and the, the technical skills, the people with those skills to Door County and attracting people who don't have a connection here is really, really difficult. So they have refocused a lot of their recruitment efforts on kind of like a long game of let's make sure that the students in Door County know who we are before they graduate high school. And we're not going to get them in their first job out of college. They're not going to go to Purdue, to Madison, to Illinois, to the Milwaukee School of Engineering, and just come back here at age 23. They're going to want to go out and live somewhere else in the world. And, but we want them to have in the back of their head when they're 28, 29, 30, 35, and they're saying, I want to have a family, or I miss home, or I want to get back closer to my, to my family, that they know that there are good jobs for them that you can be an engineer in Door County, that you can use all these skills and these career and pursue your career back here in Door County. So they've tried to get in people's heads in high school. So they have like, they're trying to contribute to a homegrown workforce in the way that say the Aaron's company has in the Brilliant area, where they have donated a lot of money to the school to create more um, and outfit technical labs and things. So it's a really interesting approach from Thermotron X and a really generous approach. Yeah, and, and it's a great way to give back to the school too. Yeah, so... And we'll see what happens with that one. That is, to my memory, I could be wrong, but that's the largest referendum I've ever heard of in Door County. Yeah. I know Southern Door had a big facilities referendum in 2001 when they built, I believe that's when they built an auditorium and, a, and the big field house gymnasium that they have, but I don't think it came close to $25 million. And I can't recall anything else similar to that. Speaking of Southern Door, what's on their referendum this year? Southern Door has the same thing. They have both an operational referendum and a facilities referendum. They have, their they're borrowing their debt from the 2001 referendum came off the books this year. So they've gone back for a $6.7 million facilities referendum to upgrade spaces in their school and upgrade security and refurbish, just like Gibraltar, they have like an old open plan section of their school that is outdated and doesn't work anymore in the elementary school. So they want to put up actual classrooms, doors, walls, improve technology and improve security. And then they also have an operational referendum for only $350,000. And that one is just to pay for ongoing costs and salary and things like that that are rising above what they're allowed to just basically tax people for. So that's going to be interesting, too, because 6.7 is no joke. But that the level of that referendum, with the debt that came off, it actually wouldn't raise taxes beyond what they are now. Mm -hmm. The difference is citizens wouldn't get that property tax break. Right. So. 
the one thing that I've in diving into these three school referendums, and there will be a there's most likely going to be a Sturgeon Bay referendum on the ballot in next April. So you're looking at almost forty million dollars in school referendums in Door County on just in this election cycle. What what struck me the other day is each one of these has a big security component. Um, roughly anywhere from six hundred thousand to a million dollars in security upgrades. Southern Door is moving their school offices to the parking lot where most of the kids enter the school so that there will be oversight on the main entryway. Um, this is a consequence of, of the kind of blowback from the school shootings that have been happening over the last 10 years and the fear from parents and administrators of not having something in place. So this, this gun debate that we have, we, we think of it as kind of distant from Door County, but this is how it trickles down. Our inability to do anything legislatively that might address this solution means that on the local level, it is actually costing us money. We're spending about a million dollars per school to upgrade security. Now, those aren't all included in this referendum. Some of it is federal grants coming down, but that's still our money. Like that, that money comes from taxes. So that, this fear is, is real. And these incidents that have happened around the country are coming home to roost in your tax dollars right now. What, what kind of security measures are, are being looked at right now? A lot of these they're putting in smart doors. So when I was in high school, the doors were just keys. And by the time I was coaching 10 years later, you had a fob. They had like new updated security. Now they've updated that security even more. There are, they're reducing the number of entrances in some, some of these schools. They are making sure that you have to be buzzed in. So you have to have all these upgrades to your technology at your doors. Um, security cameras, just the way the doors are constructed have changed now for security purposes, whether it's like where the windows are located, how many there are, sight lines. These are all things that just weren't considered for so long. But now it's like like the whole design of an entryway to a school has changed. Right. When, I was in, when I was coaching just 10 years ago, when I had a late practice with my players, we had propped open the door when the kids were arriving with a little piece of wood or a cone, and kids would just come in as they got here. Now you have to get them there at a specific time and be there to open the door for, for your players. I mean, it's, and you think about that, it's a, a small thing, but like you, you really have to monitor those entryways and exits. And it's even coaches have to go through a lot more rigmarole to schedule their practices and, and get the approval from the schools just so they know who's coming and going at all times. Right. It used to be like, I could have an open gym on a weekend and I just decide to do it, go up to the school and I'd be like, I got a few hours open, so I might as well go and do my work there and have the gym open so kids have a place to go. Now that's a lot more difficult to do. Right. I mean, that reminds me of how security worked at my college. Everything was key fobbed. Uh, you had to pass things through DPS to get, you know, into different buildings and they would have keys lined up with different fobs to different buildings and everything went through them. Um, everything was on a schedule, so everything locked at a specific time and then opened up again in the morning. Mm -hmm. But in, in high school, I think we might have had automated like locking systems. I don't think keys were used, but once you were in the school, everything was open for the most part. You could get wherever you wanted. Uh, as long as teachers locked their doors, then, you know, you couldn't get into classrooms. But once you were in the building, everything was open to you. And we're paying a lot for this in a lot of other ways too, in that our emergency services departments now do a lot of kind of role play exercises and planning for how they would handle an active shooter. So even though it it hasn't happened here yet. They go through a lot of that planning. We have lockdowns, even in Door County. We've had a couple in the last year um, based on this fear. And you have teachers that now have to go and get special training for how they're going to handle it when this happens. I mean, you used to have a tornado drill or a fire drill. But otherwise, if teachers went to conferences, they were going to conferences to learn better ways to teach and learn about new technology. Now we're spending a lot of time each year with teachers going to learn how to handle active shooters. 
and chaos and traumatized students. That costs us money. That's that's all paid for. When I was in high school, we did lockdown drills, but it was never really directly communicated what exactly it was was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we would do lockdowns, we would huddle in the corner, turn off the lights, do all of the, you know, block the windows off. But it was never directly communicated that this was to hide from an active shooter. I right. mean, it, and I was going through school up until 2012 is when I graduated high school. I mean, definitely in a post-Columbine world, but maybe before a lot of these higher profile, I mean, before Sandy Hook, those kind of things were going on. So I like I remember that, and I actually was just listening to an episode of This American Life about um, active shooter drills. And there are some schools that do surprise drills with blanks where they have the police officers hmm. just start shooting blanks in the school. And like that's your cue to go into the lockdown drill. Yeah. But they go into like how that's really traumatic, and um, if if you if the teachers know that uh, an active shooter like drill is going to come up and they're going to shoot blanks, if they know it's going to happen this weekend, if an active shooter happens in the meantime, they're just going to treat that like the drill. They're not going to treat it like the real thing. Hmm. Um, it was a really interesting episode. They started it off by talking to a school that uh, was sending a couple of its teachers to uh, get firearm training, and then they were. They were running them through drills in the school with guns with blanks of like, okay, here's, there's an active shooter in the building. He's here. So go get the nearest gun out of the locker and you have to like try to fingerprint it open and then run to that area. Like it, it's, it's mind blowing to me coming from somebody who just came out of like, you know, huddle in the corner in the dark drills to like these, you know, these, these massive escalated efforts that have been happening. Well, I think about this, like as a, as a coach, I, I played high school football. I love watching football. I love picking apart the details of football. But if people ask, well, would you coach football? No, I don't want the responsibility for just the head injuries and judging that day to day and training people to not use their head. Like that's different. I love coaching basketball. I never had to deal with that. You have head injuries. You have guys who fall on the floor. But like it's a very specific skill to teach a guy to tackle right and make sure and, and, and really stay on them and make sure they're doing it. Um, now you think of a teacher and you get into teaching not for security purposes. You get into teaching because you want to help kids. You like working with them. You like seeing them improve. A lot of different reasons, but I don't think anybody got into teaching because they wanted to potentially carry a gun or protect. I mean, otherwise they'd be cops, you know? So you just think of the demands that we're asking for and where we're spending money. It's, it's, it's a pretty, not, not saying one side of any debate or the other. I mean, it's just kind of the reality and it's, it's pretty shocking when you, when you actually think about it that way. And if you talk to a teacher about like what they're doing day to day, it's like, yeah, we had another conversation about active shooters. Like, wow. Like right. how much time is not going into educating and instead is going into security. And that's not to overstate it. Like it's not the majority of these referendums, Oh sure, but it's a factor. And, um, you know, even with Southern door, part of the reason they're remodeling that open plan is because if they did have an active shooter, they don't want a big open shooting gallery. Hate to talk to about a school that way, but that's really what we're discussing. So they want walls and doors so people could hide and escape. You have to have different alarm systems and different protocols because if you have a fire, you're going to pull the alarm and you want those kids in the hallway and getting out of the building as quickly and efficiently and orderly as you can. You have an active shooter, someone pulls the alarm. The last thing you want is them to run into the hallway and just be sitting ducks. So you have to have like different protocols for the type of emergency. I don't know how you train our office to do that, let alone an entire school. And apparently people are, are getting better and better at doing that. Um, it's credit to them. I, it's just not something my mind wraps around. But to get back to the, the larger picture, we have three school referendums, a lot of money on the table, a lot of this, 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 this county has traditionally supported the school referendums. Um, Sebastopol has passed four of them. Gibraltar has passed them going back to like 1998. Um, 
Only one of Gibraltar's has failed. I think Southern Doors had a couple of fail at different points, but this could be a really pivotal November 6th. So you said that Door County traditionally does support the the referendums. I mean, broad strokes, how is education in Door County? I, I know that you've worked for Gibraltar. I've done some work at Gibraltar. Neither of us have kids that are going through the system, but like how, how, how much of a priority is education up here? Door County schools have traditionally performed extremely well, all of them. They rank among the state leaders in ACT scores, advanced placement opportunities for colleges now, like which is vital and actually could play a role in saving a bunch of money. My nephew, for instance, he's from the Chicago area, but he had 56 credits when he went to college. So he went in as a sophomore, I think. <laughs> and there's a lot of, like, it, hypothetically, you could do that. And if you wanted to, you could graduate in three years and potentially save $30,000 right? or $60,000, depending on the school you went to. So AP classes are really important. And Gibraltar, or Gibraltar, Sevastopol, Southern Door, Sturgeon Bay have always graded out extremely well. Uh, one more bit of school news before we move on. The Gibraltar One Act is advancing to sectionals. And you're involved so, with that a little bit, huh? Yeah. Uh, they competed yesterday at 10 o'clock, and they, they are passing on to sectionals, which means they get another couple weeks of rehearsal. The One Act, for people that don't know, One Act refers to— Yeah, I was going to say, give me a succinct— what sure. does that mean versus just a play? Right. So a one act is it's a it's a, a pretty good term for what it is because it's one act of a show basically. Okay. They usually run. I think the Gibraltar or, or the 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 rules here are that you have forty minutes of setup, playtime, and takedown. So you have to do the whole show in forty minutes, which usually, if you're good, leaves you maybe about thirty minutes, thirty five, if you're really quick with the setup to actually perform your piece. Gibraltar wrote their piece, and they're doing a a play about Door County ghost stories. So they talk about uh, Minnie Kokums, they talk about uh, the Alexander Noble House a little bit, um, and they just they show these vignettes of different ghost stories from Door County. So one acts are competitive. You you travel to different schools and you compete against other schools to move on. So they're going to go to sectionals. Then I believe they go to state. Um, and I don't know where they go beyond that. I'm, I'm speaking a lot of my experience, too, because I did one X as well, uh, but we were different. We were in a different district, different, so yeah. we had different rules. So it, it changes some things about what you're actually doing. Because it's competitive, you want to do something that is unique. You want to do something that stands out. Um, because you have to load things on and off, you have to consider what you're doing with the set. A lot of one X sets are more minimal. Uh, which is is nice too. I mean, it really allows the students acting to shine through when you hmm. have a minimal set. Uh, but everything's got to be mobile. You have to be able to move things on and off. You have to be able to pack everything into uh, a truck to to transport it to different places. You're able to use the school's light and sound equipment, so you can jump into the booth and do that. You don't have to do it from stage. But beyond that, the students have to do everything themselves. The only thing that adults can do is assist with the load on, uh, like getting things into the school, but actually moving them onto the stage has to be done by the students. But then adults can do the light and sound, or in my case, the video projection. That's what I helped out with this one. Um, I've been working with the students there for two years. This will be my third year doing stuff with them. Uh, I've done two of the musicals before. Now I'm doing video projection for the one act, and I'm going to be helping out with the uh, the musical coming up this year as well. So it was really great. the The show has a lot of potential, and that was something that was communicated by the judges, so they get to move on, so they get more time to work on it, to rehearse, to change things that the judges said that they could improve upon, and just to to tighten things up. Hmm. So again, they have 40 minutes. 
play is running about 28 minutes right now. So they have some room to expand the script or move things around if they want to. They just get to play with it for another couple weeks and then try again. Hmm. Uh, every level of competition gets more competitive and, and more difficult to pass on through. So this would be a really key time for them to really build this up and make it something really special so that they can continue on through the next couple, the next couple rounds of competition. You know, I, w- I was not a theater guy in high school. I was so focused on sports and running a, a business that I had with my brother at the time. But then after I graduated and as I went through adulthood, I'm like, man, I really wish I had the confidence that those kids who were in theater or who were music majors that come out and they're, they're comfortable in front of crowds. Even when I was coaching, I was like, gosh, I, was, I wish I was like a little more comfortable in front of a room <laughs> because there's just so many. When you think of high school, it's, it's one of the more important things you could learn because that's, that's what puts you in, kind of naturally makes you gravitated toward leadership positions. Not that you seek them out, but that others just expect you to do them because you have that confidence. So, I mean, you think of theater and you go, yeah, but what are you going to do with that? Be besides be impoverished, yeah. but you say to the man with the theater degree, yeah. <laughs> but you can see it even in yourself of somebody who's confident doing this and doing podcasts like this. That background is what trains you to do that. It took me a long time to get to the point where I would sit here and have this conversation with anybody recording it, right? So, I, I just think that's we think of it in terms of like what career is that prepping you for, or what what's the point of that? And it goes so far beyond just like learning how to act, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, yeah, I think that everybody should audition for a play in high school. Everybody should try it. Um, I did a whole semester in college where I was, like, very focused on teaching theater to non-majors. So I was the the student teacher for a non-major theater elective. that Because you had to take uh, a couple different electives. One of them, you could take a theater one, uh, and it would be like a 745 class where non-majors would just roll up and then just, like, you know, not try really hard. But it was cool to, like, try to teach theater techniques to non-majors. And a lot of them were the same way. They're like, when am I going to use this? And I was like, well, have you ever had to give a speech before for class? This is a great opportunity for you to learn how to deliver those more confidently. And, and just different things, too. I mean, there's, there's theatrical movement classes, which are a great, you know, exercise. They also help you with coordination and balance. Um, stage combat is another one that's really great for hand-eye coordination because <laughs> you have to be really safe. If you're, if you're throwing fists or, or swinging a weapon at somebody, you have to be really focused on what it is you're actually doing so as not to hurt them. And think um, of what you'll be able to do at future Renaissance fairs. Exactly. No, me and my wife have actually been putting together a, a demonstration because we we took several You guys stage do a lot combat. of sword fighting? Yeah. Very contentious household? No, we do, actually. It, I, I'm not even embarrassed to admit that, that me and her, we did two semesters of stage combat with Dueling Arts International in college um and we got uh, certified through that your face is very bruised up i was wondering yeah. what that was about yeah that's my wife beating me up every day <laughs> but like it, it's it's super fun it's a great thing to to be able to put on a resume especially when you're auditioning that you have stage combat experience because a lot of plays incorporate stage combat i mean shakespeare is free so if you're going to do a shakespeare play you're probably going to have some sort of violence in it at some point but I think theater for non-majors or, or theater as an educational tool is really important because, like you said, it gives you a skill set that makes you more confident. It makes you more employable. Um, I would say 90% of the jobs that I've ever had, my theater experience came up in the interview and were probably a major deciding factor. I would I would guess that this is not to diminish math, but we do all have cal- calculators in our pocket now. Um, although if you are really good at math, it, it does have extremely good benefits. But like on the whole, like 
public speaking, presenting yourself, confidence, it's probably a more universal job skill as what you might get out of like a theater versus some of the specific programs that we might study. Well, and if, you, if you're in any sort of job where you are meeting a diverse group of people, like here at The Pulse, we interview all sorts of different types of people. And my theater background allows me to kind of chameleon into any sort of situation. So it's like if I'm talking to somebody that I don't have a lot of background in the same field, I mean, we talk to a lot of people about, you know, fishing and the maritime industry and um, you also, can fake like you're interested it's really well yeah it, what do they say fake it's, it fake it's it till you bit, make it is right. that thing that you always say to people and it's like math doesn't teach you to fake it right with math it's like those are the rules and you do the rules and math is like a universal language in a way where it's like this is how it works and you do it like this whereas theater is is 100% free form and creative there's no right or wrong way to do something you can do you can do anything. And there's like the type of theater that I really focused on in college was mask work and clowning. So it was about like, if you were to use like, you know, a method actor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the method is where you really investigate what your character like is. Like immerse yourself in who that yeah. person is. Yeah. So it's like, what did my character have for breakfast this morning? What was he like yesterday? What you do a bunch of work on what happened outside of the play to inform who you are. Whereas Marlon Brando is like the most famous of those, right? Yep. Marlon Brando, uh, Heath Ledger was a method actor. The method is all about internalizing all of these thoughts and feelings and knowledge about your character. Whereas mask work is about creating a physicality that matches what the character is. So you'd look at a character and you would try to boil them down to like one emotion or one driving feature. And then you'd try to embody that with everything. So if you were playing a character who is... Uh, very angry. You'd be like, okay, anger is the character. How do I show that on my face? How do I show that in my body? And then I hold that posture the entire time and let everything else come out of that. So when you make a really angry face, the character's voice is going to come through that mask. You don't Mm -hmm. even have to worry about like, what does my character sound like? It's just going to come out of the hole that you make with your mouth with the angry face that you make. Yeah. Um, So it's like boiling things way down and then just working through those. Um, it's a lot of like focusing on the effort of it, which, you know, just keeps you grounded and honest and there on stage. Cause one of the big mistakes you can make on theater is just getting inside your head and thinking about what your next line is yeah. instead of paying attention to the other actor on stage, right. which is more important. So when I'm on stage, I like to just be there and not think about the show. I just think about like, okay, here I am. This is my posture and my face, and this is what they're giving me. And I'm just going to listen to them. Hmm. There's, yeah, it's a whole craft that is outside my realm of, <laughs> like, great acting is, is pretty remarkable. When you, when you watch something, you're like, wow, that really seems real. That seems like who they are. It's, it's fascinating. Well, now you know how I feel whenever we talk about sports here. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of sports, one other thing, there's a disc golf tournament coming up, right? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't play disc golf. Don't know a heck of a lot about it other than uh, I know that this one is going on at the Orchards Golf Course. There has been a big movement to get more and more disc golf courses in the county. There's one in Sister Bay at the sports complex. Bailey's Harbor is working on building one at, at their uh, sports complex. Jacksonport, I believe, have, has one. But these disc golfers are taking over the Orchards Golf Course um, next weekend and um, just going to have a, like a, a real tournament set up. So kind of cool. That's another neat thing that people have descended on 
we're counting for. Yeah, I've I've noticed that disc golf is is kind of popular up here. Um, I know Dave Elliott is an avid disc golfer, or at least he was. He mm-hmm. says that he's in retirement now. Yeah. Um, but I, I've never played disc golf. Um, but for some reason, I just want Dave to come out of retirement and take me as his protege. He, he was good. And then he would teach me everything I would need to know. He's good. He's got a good drive. Did you ever play like Ultimate Frisbee or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I love Ultimate Frisbee, actually. I don't I don't play it a lot, but I have played it, and it, it was it's a lot of fun. It's mm-hmm. a good, really good workout. Well, and Dave was talking to you the other day. He was like, the reason you're not good at disc golf is because you throw it like a Frisbee and not yeah. like a disc. And then I was like, what's the difference? Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, I was trying to picture like, I mean, you don't throw it like a discus. I mean, he does have a different style now that I think about it. But And, and he chucks it really far. I have to throw it like four times to go as far. Um, I also have a really weak arm that was very evident when I played baseball as well. So um, I don't think disc golf is in my future. But it is know. pretty cool. Like it was, it's fun to spend some time. Any anytime you can do something that gets you outside, um, it's a bonus. I do know one secret that might give you the edge in a competitive situation with disc golf. So everybody is going to be throwing with one arm, right? Because that's kind of how you throw. If you throw with both arms, you get double the power. That's science. That's yeah, science I don't think works. that's going to work. No, it does. You take both <laughs> arms, you spin around like you're throwing like an Olympic shot put. I think we should have you and Dave try these two different techniques on video. We'll put that out, DoorCountyPulseTV.com. Well, I think that we're going to take a break here, and then when we get back, we're going to jump into uh, our discussion about the Fall 50 coming up here this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be a crazy weekend with a lot of runners. All right, I will see you in a moment. The podcast this week is brought to you by the Door County Half Marathon and Nicolay Bay 5K. The race starts on May 4th, 2019. The entire Door County Half Marathon is run on a closed USATF certified road course through one of the Midwest's most revered destinations, Peninsula State Park. Registration is open right now. And if you want to register, you can go to DoorCountyHalfMarathon.com. All right, we are back. Our feature this week, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Fall 50. So, Miles, I know that you have a hand in the Fall 50 coming up this weekend. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what's going on? Yeah, it's a really busy, crazy couple of days here in Door County for, for me and everybody involved with the race. The forecast of snow, possible snow and heavy rain has gone away, but uh, it's going to be windy. But it should at least be partly sunny and temperatures won't be terrible. But there is going to be a 20-mile-an-hour backwind for all the runners, so we might see some really good times. Mm. I remember last year it was pretty windy, too. Was that helpful or hurtful for the runners? It's uh, it, it depends on what the, the temperatures are. Last year was a pretty nice day, so it's not too bad to have some breeze because it, it kind of cools you off. And these you know, fall, late fall runners are, are a pretty hardy group. And the the solo runners who are the ones who take the brunt of it because they're going— there's about 80 solo runners doing 50 miles from the Gills Rock shoreline um, all the way down to Sunset Park in Sturgeon Bay. So right. that is a lot of time to be in your own head, in the cold, in the wind, in the rain, in some cases. Um, the relay runners, you know, you get to, you run a three-mile to seven-mile stretch, and then you hand off the baton, and then you get in a car. So you get to warm up and right. change the pace up and talk to people. How many runners all together for this year? So it's pretty big. They have, so like I said, like, Somewhere between 80 and 100 solo runners. And then they're going to have 505 teams. And about 30 of those are teams of two who run about 25 miles each. And then the rest of those teams are all teams of four to six. So you have somewhere in the realm of 2,500 runners hitting the road this, this weekend on Saturday. 
what's uh, what's kind of the backstory behind the Fall 50? When did it start up? And and I also want to know a little bit about, is it just its proximity to Halloween, why people dress up? Or did that, was that from the very first Fall 50? Or is that something that's happened over time? So the race is organized by Sean Ryan, who also organized the Door County Triathlon. And the reason they launched it um, originally is because when he launched the triathlon in July, people said, well, why don't you do something in the off- shoulder season, in the off season, and not just in peak season? Because you can't do a triathlon in Door County. Basically, you have a four-week window when the te- water temperature is high enough that you can actually do it. Sure. So you have to do that in peak season. So he started scouting around, and he one day went on a, a drive. He told me this story, and he's like, hmm, if I drive from Gills Rock to Sturgeon Bay, it's almost exactly 50 miles. And then he's like, Fall 50. Someone's got to have that name. So he looked it up and he's like, nobody has the name Fall 50 for a race. So he's like, I got to do this. So he founded the race. And the first year he had about 35 teams. So he lost a good chunk of money. And for four four or five years, he, he lost a good chunk every year. And he would tell you that his wife was telling him, why are we doing this? And, and he was pretty confident that it would grow. And he's a stubborn guy. So he wanted to prove that it would. And eventually he got to like 200 teams and then it just took off. Now this race sells out in 10 minutes. For real? Registration opens at April 1st and it sells out in 10 minutes. And it's it's not even a cheap price point either. It's like over $100 a runner. So, but he made it so fun at the beginning. He does all you can eat pizza. There's beer and wine at the finish line. There's two massive tents in Sunset Park. There's a DJ. People started wearing costumes. So then it became, he's like, well, let's make it a costume contest. So now a lot of teams running costumes. So when you get to the finish line you and you go into that big tent with the DJ, there is just people in costumes bopping up and down. And it's, it's a pretty kind of hilarious, crazy scene. Um, and it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, those solo runners start at 7 a.m. They finish, some of them finish in like five hours. There's a guy who's running at a six and a half minute per mile pace for 50 miles. That's insane. Yeah, absolutely. What's the what's the course? I know that it goes down 42 for a majority of it, but does it branch off into some of the more scenic routes? Yeah, so it it is it is a really beautiful run. Even though some of the colors are starting to leave the trees right now, the the route that it's on is a lot of that kind of like canopied, colorful roads. So you start in Gills Rock at the Shoreline Restaurant, and then they go down Garrett Bay Road, which was one of my favorite roads in the county any time of year, but especially in the fall. It's just a canopy of colors. And then you go through Ellison Bay, up the Ellison Bay Hill, and then it takes another, take, take your back roads down like Beach Road. And then it kind of continues that pattern all the way down to Sturgeon Bay where you go, you're running, it's just kind of tracing the shoreline all the way down and you pop into the little villages and then pop into these back roads. And then right once you get bored of the back roads, you're popping into a village again. And there are exchange points throughout. There's like a halfway buffet at Villaggio's in Fish Creek or in Judville. And when they do like chicken noodle soup, there's tons of food and support vehicles and stuff along the route. It is, if you want to see like the best of Door County in one day, even if you just drove the, drove the course, you'd get a pretty great taste of Door County. Sean has actually tried to replicate this event in like Cape Cod, and he's looked at other destinations to try and do a couple of more of these around the country. But he said Door County is just such a unique place geographically. And then there's a lot of places where you can do scenic runs and do a 50-mile run, but there's not a lot of places that have both Door County's geography and the beauty and the little towns that kind of break up the run and make it fun so the people who are on the relay team can like pop into a coffee shop or pop into a bar or something and have a drink and then or and move on and then pick somebody up. It's it's a really, really unique destination. And he said, in spite of the fact that he goes out, he works the Boston Marathon. He works the over the bay 10K in um outside Baltimore, Maryland. 
and the Bellin Run, the Cellcom Marathon, all these different runs. He said, there's nothing really that I've seen that compares to what Door County has to offer for an event like this. So it's it's a really unique event. And as someone who runs, like the, I was I was a big skeptic. And then somebody asked me to be on a relay team one year. It is a ton of fun. Yeah. It's just like you're hanging out with your friends for the whole day and bopping around. And you're around a bunch of great running friends and stuff. And it, it is a lot more fun than I think I could do justice to explaining it. What are some of your favorite costume teams that you've seen? I mean, you've seen everything. You've seen the Power Rangers group that ran, like, fully decked out as Power Rangers a couple years ago. It was nice. pretty great. You know, you always see a few teams dressed as barmaids. It's become sort of like a... The, the most creative are always, like, the 40 to 50-year-old women they're, who are, like, treated as, like, a girl's getaway weekend. All these moms were like, all right, get away from the kids, get away from the husband. And they, they're the ones who, like, deck themselves out in the best costumes and kind of, like, have the most fun with it. I know last year I saw a couple of good ones. I saw a bunch of people dressed up like French chefs. So they all had, like, the full <laughs> white uniform with the red uh, ascot on. Um, I saw a Scooby-Doo mystery team, I, the four main members of that. There's groups of Santa Clauses, elves, Oompa Loompas. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's pretty hilarious watching these guys run. I don't know. I've, I've never... I have a hard enough time running, and I am a runner, but, like, in perfect clothing. So putting on a costume, like Jackson Parr, our old writer, would, where he would dress up in, like, a, a wild tomato, like a big tomato suit, and that covered his whole body. I'm like, how do you breathe in that? Right. Maybe it's easier than I think. Have you have you seen anybody run in one of those big inflatable T-Rex costumes? No, but that should happen. That would be really good. <laughs> uh, what do you do for the Fall 50? I know you're volunteering there, right? Um, yeah, so I work the... In past years, I've done course signage, so driving around putting up all the signs. There's tons of turn and mile markers. This year, I am managing the fluid stations, so that just means taking a couple of big Penske rental trucks full of supplies, food, water, tables, and everything, and getting those to the right spots throughout the course. Um, and that's my whole focus for you know last couple of days, and then tomorrow all day. And then you have other people who are responsible for very specific sections. It's, it's a ton of work that goes into putting it on. And there's a lot of charity groups that help out. And and there's about $30,000 a year that goes to local charities. Uh, Surgeon Bay High School provides a lot of people, Gibraltar High School, a lot of different nonprofits who who get a good chunk of change from this event. Is the first big uh, like relay station at Grandview and Ellison Bay? Because I drove by there yesterday. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's the first stop on the, uh, that's the first exchange point. And that's been reconfigured this year to get make it a little even safer and easier for cars and stuff and, and people who aren't part of the race to get around it. So made some adjustments the last couple of years. Cool. Yeah, I'd actually never been to Grandview before. It's an awesome. It really is. Awesome yeah, view. I went there yesterday. Uh, I was going to fly the drone, but it was too windy. So I just took some shots of the like the hilly. It's very hilly. And then you've got like where the water goes out. Uh, towards the bay. It's, it's, really it's somewhat similar to like that view from Sven's Bluff where you see like the the contours of the of the northern tip of the county kind of flow into the water. Right. And the, the Liberty Grove Historical Society um, has some really cool displays up there too. Of They have some old huts that they've um, moved to that property and displays of old, old machinery and the barn that they have there is really beautiful and cool. So it, And they're, soon they'll have that Niagara Escarpment Center across the street. So that'll actually be a really neat, neat thing for Liberty Grove. Well, great. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it up there this weekend, but I, I would like to try to. I was up there last year and got a bunch of footage, um, but it might be nice to go out and hang out with people. Definitely the after party in... In Sunset Park down in Sturgeon Bay. Is, I mean, that was like bopping last year, and I would imagine yeah. it would be the same this year. Yeah, and even if you aren't part of it, you're going to you're gonna see the crowds coming through. There. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> 
Well, I think that that just about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Miles. And you bet. And have fun this weekend. All right. Good to talk to you as always. These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. 